Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. Each week on the podcast, I interview parents who are raising multilingual children, Montessori guides who have taught in bilingual classrooms or who are themselves multilingual, and adults who grew up speaking two or more languages. We discuss the intersection between language and identity, how to find balance when speaking two or more languages in a monolingual environment, and all the joys and challenges that we experience along the way. Today I'm speaking with Siri Pandey, the Director of Education for Toddler and Primary at Marin Montessori School in Northern California. Siri is trained as both a 0 to 3 and 3 to 6 AMI guide, and she has worked in Montessori schools as a guide, administrator, and consultant for over 20 years. Early in her teaching career, she had the opportunity to help open a Montessori Children's House classroom in Kathmandu, Nepal, and we chat about her memories of teaching in Nepal and learning to speak Nepali. Siri grew up bilingual in English and Norwegian, and she now has two daughters who are trilingual in English, Norwegian, and Nepali. In this conversation, we talk about navigating identity and moving between cultures, raising multilingual children, and how Siri's understanding of Montessori evolved once she became a parent. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Siri. Hi, Siri. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Thanks so much for being here. I'm excited. Thanks for the invitation. Um, Me too. All right. Well, to start out, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, and about your family. I'm Siri Pandey. I reside in California, the North Bay, and I have two daughters, one 13 and one who's six. Awesome. Um, So we're going to talk about Montessori and language and how they relate. Um, But to start, tell me about your Montessori journey. How did you first find out about Montessori and what drew you to Montessori? So my Montessori journey began when I was just fresh out of college and truly wrote down a list of things that I thought that I was good at and a list of things that I wanted to have in my life. And I kind of stared at this list. (laughs) Um, I had um, an undergraduate degree in art. I liked being with children. I liked travel. I liked languages. And I truly stared at this list. And what I came up with was maybe I could be a Montessori teacher. (laughs) And I had heard about Montessori very much in passing uh, from a college Um, classmate. His parents are both Montessori guides, and he turned out to be a very authentic, interesting, and wonderful person. And I thought, hmm, maybe there's something to that. So I started reading. I read E.M. Standing's biography of uh, Maria Montessori, and then I talked to um, some folks in the Massachusetts community, and I decided to apply. And I applied and took training in Portland, Oregon in 2001. So tell me what you remember about your first year's teaching after your Montessori training. It's a very memorable year because I moved to Illinois. I had my own classroom. I had 28 children in my environment. I remember color coding everything and following 
my training. I was trained by Shannon Helfrich. And when I got there, the color coding was all off in the practical life. So I remember redoing the practical life. I remember I had a green table scrubbing <laughs> set. It's all very vivid. I got my first car, my first apartment. And um, luckily, because I had only my training uh, as my experience, I had to just follow that because that's all I knew. And so that did serve me well. And it was, a, it was a really good experience. How long did you stay in that classroom? Unfortunately, I only stayed in that classroom for one year because the school had to downsize. They, um, so they closed my classroom, which was very disappointing because anybody who started a Montessori classroom knows that it takes a lot of time and a lot of work to get started and set up. And it's very hard to walk away. But it was a good lesson in impermanence for me because I spent that year wondering, am I going to be here forever? Am I going to stay at this apartment forever? Am I going to be in Illinois forever? And sort of one of my worries was about how long would I stay there and would I make my life there? And so at the end of that year, I got that life lesson not to worry because sometimes it's not in your control. Yeah. <laughs> um, and everything is impermanence, you know, but that's yeah. a hard thing to figure out. And what drew you to, so your first training was three to six, is yes. that correct? And then you also went back to get your zero to three training. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that experience. So I felt like there were these young ones that would come who I didn't quite understand. You know, they were three and I didn't quite understand their mentality. I felt like there was more to learn about who this child is. And some children are partially ready for primary, but some aspects they're still kind of um, in toddler mentality, um, the unconscious absorbent mind. And so I just felt like I needed to understand them better in order to do my work better. And I liked the idea of um, being able to have an, another training. I think, you know, as Montessorians, um, the experience of going through the training is so transformational and you learn so much. So I really got excited about that. And I went to Denver for two summers. Awesome. Did you ever work in a toddler environment? I did work in a toddler environment um, in the summertime. I was a primary guide uh, in the um, school year. And then in the summertime, I worked at a, a toddler um, summer camp. So tell me about your experience opening a Montessori school in Nepal. And uh, how did that come about? And what do you remember about that experience? Yes. Well, really, truly was my friend who opened the school. Uh, I met her in my uh, Denver training. She was a year senior to me, lovely woman who I consider a dear friend. And we were at a casual setting and she was telling me about her uh, plans to open a Montessori school in Nepal. And I thought that was amazing. And she casually invited me to come. And I said, well, be careful if you invite me because I just might. <laughs> and I remember I got her information I called her and um, decided to make a leap of faith and go. And uh, it was really an amazing experience, life-changing. And I lived in a pink schoolhouse where we had a primary environment that I helped open the primary environment. She had a toddler and neato environment um, already started. Actually toddler, not neato, I'm sorry. And it was a great experience, very tight knit, wonderful group of teachers. And um, anytime I'm back in Nepal, I always make sure to visit them. And 
from there, she has grown it into a large school, actually. She's very successful. So it was amazing. Wow. How long were you there? I was there for six months. Okay. Um, and what differences do you remember about the materials that were used in the classroom? Um, one thing that's so special about Montessori is that the practical life area in particular is so adaptable to each culture and real materials that people really do use all over the world. Um, so tell me about what the practical life materials were like. We definitely sourced everything there for the practical life materials. And I remember that there was a broom that's a specific Nepali type of broom where you really have to hunch over to sweep. And that was there. Um, you know, baskets uh, for for the materials were hand woven and there are some some beautiful uh, baskets that are part of, of Nepali culture that we had access to and that we created. And we had access to the outdoors. There were marigolds and in the garden um, so that the children could water the plants. So there were similarities and um, there were some differences as well. So tell me about what the linguistic experience was like for you when you went to Nepal. Did you speak any Nepali before that? And uh, what was it like learning Nepali when you were there? I did not speak Nepali. I got a Lonely Planet guide, which I remember vividly, and I tried to learn phrases. Luckily, um, I was in Kathmandu, which is a place where most, most or many people speak English, some some degree of English. Um, and the children did come to school with some English and some of the teachers spoke English well. And um, they were, you know, often conversing together in Nepali, uh, but, but they would understand me if I spoke English. But over time, I was able to move towards speaking more and more Nepali as I went, you know, out and about to a bazaar or a store and I needed to get something, I was able to use Nepali. And I was always listening to the children and learning from them while I was the English speaking guide and we were teaching uh, in English and I would give presentations in English, the assistant would speak um, in Nepali to the children. And I remember um, doing the rough and smooth boards <laughs> and I gave the English language and I remember that the uh, assistant had, uh, had given the language uh, in Nepali. So that was, Castro, chiplo, castro, chiplo, the child was saying again. Then I was saying rough, smooth. And so the child said, rough, smooth. And it was, you know, it was, it was neat to have the op opportunity to learn uh, along the side of the children in yeah. such a practical context. That was very helpful. So speaking of language, tell me about your own language journey. Um, which languages did you grow up speaking and hearing as a child and which languages do you speak now? Sure. So I grew up speaking Norwegian and English. My mom is from Norway and my grandma only spoke Norwegian and um, my maternal grandma. And so when she would visit or when we would visit her, we had to use Norwegian and uh, now I speak Nepali and uh, Norwegian and English in my home. So your husband is Nepali and um, did you meet him there or was that the reason that you went to Nepal? <laughs> <laughs> we met in college and uh, part of my curiosity to go to Nepal and have my own experience in Nepal was thinking that if things went well, <laughs> I wanted to kind of um, be able to add 
that to my life as well. Because when you get married, if you choose to, it's not just marrying the person, but certainly um, my in-laws and, and the culture and knowing what that was all about, that was on my mind as well. Yeah. Um, do you ever practice your Nepali with your husband at home? I do. He's He doesn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't really like it when I speak to him in Nepali. It tends to be more of a code language, you know, uh, but I can't use it as a code language against um, my kids knowing what we're saying anymore because they're, they, they, they've gotten to that point where they know what we're saying. So we, we tend to speak together in Nepali at the dinner table. If we make a point of it, I was like, okay, guys, we're going to speak in Nepali at the dinner table. Um, and, and then, um, then I will use my Nepali, but I mostly speak Nepali with my mother-in-law <laughs> and she's really good at staying in that role. Cause that's more comfortable to her. Um, and so that's where I get a lot of practice and, and with friends, because when a, a whole group of my husband's friends come together and their close knit group of friends, they're going to speak in Nepali. And that was one of my reasons of wanting to learn Nepali was I just was too bored at those gatherings <laughs> too left out, you know, so I wanted to be in the mix. And so now I can hang and um, that's a fun thing to, to not miss the conversation. Definitely. And yeah. to know what my husband's saying when he's talking on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's handy. <laughs> <laughs> now you have two children. Um, mm -hmm. So what does multilingualism look like in your family and in your daily routine? Yeah. Um, so when it's just me and my girls, I really try to remember to switch to Norwegian and to speak to them fully in Norwegian to be that Norwegian language example. And when it's the family all together, typically around the dinner table, we are speaking in English because we are in an English dominated location and what we're experiencing is in English. Um, but my husband will switch into Nepali. You know, he will, he will speak in Nepali uh, with family members who call on the phone. And so then we will jump in and we will be speaking with them in Nepali as well. So all of the three languages are happening, but it tends to be dominated by English um, a little bit more than I would like, but that's just kind of where we are. I think my experience has been that the environment that you're surrounded in can really impact your ability to hold on to the language. So having opportunities to be with folks who speak that, that second language or third language is really vital and important in, in being in person with them. Yeah. So. Have you been able to, um, make any connections with other families that speak Norwegian or Nepali? Definitely we have. So when we, we just moved to California, but when we were in New York City, that worked very well. We were able to access uh, families and, and friends so that we were able to keep that really alive. And I think that's very important for children to experience. In New York City, we were able to go to um, a Norwegian church, which is kind of functioned like a cultural center as well where there were language groups and the children would have an opportunity to be together and they would sing songs or do crafts and have food together. Um, the parents would have coffee together and chat. So from that, uh, I really was able to make some close friendships that translated into more meaningful opportunities for using Norwegian. So that was very helpful. Um, and for my daughters to have exposure to Nepal, we've definitely made that a priority to travel with them. So we've had many great trips there so that they can be with their grandparents and their cousins and being in person is just key and 
we have my husband has a lot of friends who he grew up with who are also here in the states so when we connect with them in person that's been really helpful and being with their children as well cool um what so other than keep connecting with people what mm-hmm. kinds of language learning resources and support have you turned to for um supporting your children's Norwegian and Nepali? And is it difficult to find that those kind of resources in the US? Yeah, sure. So over the time of raising them, definitely the access has changed. So in the beginning, um, books and CDs were really what I had access to for my my oldest daughter when she was young. So having songs, um, CDs of children's songs in Norwegian, having access to playing those and singing those with her, reading books to her, you know, having those books available. That was really, you know, having that media around was very helpful. And then um, as she's gotten older now, we've been able to access something called Globalskolen, which is a global network for Norwegians who are raising their children outside of Norway. So she actually takes some courses um, through them online. We do try to be careful with how much you know screen time we have, but this has been really uh, a quality offering. So um, it's interactive. There are real teachers who are checking her homework and uh, their videos. And it also gives her current cultural components. Um, that's something that's really interesting to consider that culture continues to change, right? So even as I'm living here in the US raising my daughters, the Norwegian culture has changed significantly since when my mom was growing up there, right? So it gives um, it gives my oldest daughter access to kind of current culture. Um, so that's been very helpful. And um, in the Nepali realm as well, during the pandemic, when we were not able to you know, meet with so many friends and so on, we did access um, an online option for my oldest daughter as well. And that was through Rata uh, Bangala, which is a, a school in Nepal. They offered a, a Saturday morning Nepali kind of class for children that was singing, you know, reading and um, some basic writing. So seeing what's out there and depending on how you feel about media um, and depending on the age of your child, I think those are really, those are great options. Um, But for my youngest daughter, definitely it's been lots of grandma time and that's how I learned as well. So my mom's very involved with with our lives and uh, when, when my girls are with her, she only speaks to them in Norwegian, kind of continuing that same transition. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so what do you notice about how your girls, so you said you um, mostly speak in English together as a family. What do you notice about when they switch languages or their language preferences um, mm-hmm. as they grow older? Mm-hmm. I should say that when they were little infants, I was very stubborn and I only spoke to them in Norwegian all the time um, because I know that you really have to cling to that language. You have to fight hard to keep that language. Um, so when they were younger, that was definitely predominantly how, how I reinforced it. I think definitely their language preference tends to be English because that's what they have the most experience in. That's what school life is in. But I think that with my youngest daughter, She's very keen to speak with me in Norwegian. I think that um, we tend to switch most often to Norwegian. She'll bring me books because uh, she's still in that picture book phase where I'm reading to her. And so she really, um, she enjoys that a lot. And we, are, we limit stream time for her as well, but we do Friday night movie nights. And um, one of my tricks with that has been to access Norwegian um, 
public television, basically like their PBS, now that we have access to that, we'll sometimes watch something and it's often, you know, a, a young girl on a farm and she's taking care of you know, goats. <laughs> it's so Norwegian. Um, and it's neat because what they will show in Norway on PBS is different than maybe what they would show in the US. You know, the goat is giving birth. There's a lot of information coming at you. <laughs> um, so I think it's funny culturally as well that um, she gets exposed to life and death and birth in a very open way that's more so than in the US. Um, and I see the same thing when we go to Nepal and we're traveling in Nepal, we see more of life and death. And that's in, in both um, second cultures, those, you know, second and third cultures, um, you, you can see that in the language, but also in the media or what you, expo what you experience there, uh, different ways of being, different cultural ways of being. And I think that's what I'm most excited about for them to have access to. Um, is is that diversity of, of life experience too. Yeah, definitely. One theme that comes up a lot in my interviews in this podcast is how inextricable language is from culture mm -hmm. and how you really can't separate the two. Mm -hmm. uh, that's very interesting. That's the most important thing about language. Language is, is for communication. You know, I think it's not something to be taught like a subject. It needs to have a life. It needs to be active in your child's life it needs to be purposeful they're not going to use it if it doesn't have um, utility right language has to have utility and purpose and I think that what I'm excited about is for them to be able to genuinely have this language that they can then use to connect to their cultures right you know because they are Norwegian they are Nepali they are uh, you know Americans they feel like New Yorkers we just moved so <laughs> they still feel like New Yorkers um, but being able to speak fluently, you know, with a minimal accent because they have access to native speakers, uh, I hope that they can feel that they connect to those cultures. And there are concepts in each language that you really, you can't express, you know, um, in English. So um, it's fun, it's fun to learn and have yeah. that headspace for different, different ways of thinking too. Yeah. Um, so, for you personally, do you feel like you express yourself differently in each language that you speak or um, maybe feel like you can talk about one subject or be in one sort of sphere better mm -hmm. in one language than in another? Definitely. Um, it's all experience and exposure, right? So um, in Nepali, I'm very good about things at the house level, <laughs> you know, I'm very good about food and things that you might experience on the, on the basic home level. Um, I can't understand the news. It's, it goes way over me and, and it's actually spoken in a different way. It's completely non-colloquial. So my ability and facility with Nepali is based on just daily living. Um, and uh, a lot of food because food is very important in, in, in Nepali culture and in, in my in-laws home. Um, and in, in Norway as well, I think that when I'm expressing myself in Norwegian, it tends to be what I've had experience and exposure to. Um, I don't express Montessori. My Montessori world has completely been in English. So I don't feel that I have that same facility to express Montessori concepts in Norwegian. Um, although I feel that I am able to express myself on all other levels in Norwegian. Um, yeah. 
I don't know. Did yeah. I answer the question? <laughs> you did. You did. One thing that I remember you saying years ago is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that growing up you in America, you felt like you were Norwegian. And then when you went to Norway, you felt like you were American. So um, <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that experience growing up. So true. Definitely. Um, right. Because, um, you know, since my mom grew up in Norway, uh, when she came to the U.S., she still ran our home, our household still ran with all of the Norwegian cultural values that she had grown up with. So the food and 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 how we made our bed and um, habits and all of those customs were just definitely her heritage. So if I had a friend over, we were eating something called lapskos, you know, <laughs> which is a mishmash of vegetables and meat and we had a flatbread and, you know, like, yeah, this is love's ghost. <laughs> so if you want to. Um, so to all of the kids that I went to school with, I was that Scandinavian kid. Um, and I grew up on the East Coast at a time where people, Scandinavia wasn't really on the map so much. So people didn't really know where Norway was on the level that they do now. Um, and when I went to, to Norway to visit my grandma, we got dressed up and we got new clothes and it was a very big deal and we were in the neighborhood we were the American kids you know <laughs> and you can see from what we were wearing that we had bought all these clothes in the U.S. and um, I, so I think that it was really interesting um, to have that experience you know and, and to feel connected to both places but to feel neither totally one or the other you know um, just because of the experience of having that duality. Yeah. Do you see that experience in your children at all as they are getting older? It's really fascinating to think about it. And we talk about it very openly in our home, you know, identity as well as culture and um, belonging. You know, all of these topics are very important. Um, I see it as well that since we just moved to California, we're trying to figure out, you know, how to connect to and, and how to um, belong to Californian culture here, where we find ourselves in the North Bay. Um, and definitely language, um, you know, cultural heritage, having a different name. My children have unusual names. My name used to be unusual. <laughs> um, so when people hear your name, they ask questions like, what is that name? And where are you from? And um, so I think that they experience that as well, but they name it. And I think that by having facility in the language, I think they can claim a bit of ownership of those places as well. Um, so that's, I think, another aspect of if we can give our children the gift of, the, of extra languages, if they belong to that culture as well, I think it, it helps them to feel more connected. Yeah. One thing that I was thinking about as you were saying that is that in Montessori, we talk about how when a child is learning language, when they have a name for something, it also helps them understand the concept of that thing. Then mm -hmm. um, this is not something I thought about even before when I was preparing questions, but when you were saying that, I kind of made this connection to how when you speak a language, you also kind of take ownership of that culture too. Um, Definitely. That's very much on my, on my mind. I want... I want my children who don't look very Nepali to speak Nepali wonderfully so that when they show up, they're like, look, I've got it, you know? Um, 
yeah, I, when I show up in Norway and I can go undetected, I feel really great. <laughs> yeah. Or if, if I can meet someone in New York, um, you know, and, and speak to them in Norwegian and go undetected, I get really excited. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I claim it then. So one thing that I forgot to ask you before when we were talking about Montessori is um, how did the way that you think about Montessori change once you became a mother? Because you were, um, I, did you do both of your Montessori training before you had children? Um, yes, I did. I did. Um, yeah. And I think I definitely learned what it's like to bring to bring it home and to be so eager to do it just so um and i had a friend who um she has children older than mine and she was able to remind me that you know the role a monastery friend the role that you have in it as a guide leading your classroom is very different than the role that you have as a parent supporting your child's development and to just over time i learned to be kinder to myself to um and that also is, is the case in the classroom. I think as Montessorians, we can be very, you know, we clear on what, what our goals are. And I think um, I learned that I didn't have to put on a whole classroom to, to support to support my child at home. And I had, you know, I had to had to be kind if I'd been in a classroom all day, going home and preparing a home environment. But it's a lot of pressure, um, and to apply it in a manner that is true and supportive of development, but doesn't overwhelm you to the point that you're not enjoying it is I think important for both the classroom and the home. What do you notice about your children's experiences as they get older, uh, moving between cultures and moving between places and being multicultural and mm -hmm. multilingual? Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of offering them that opportunity. You know, it's, 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 totally imperfect and it's fine uh, you know I am excited that they get to um, speak Norwegian and I'm, I'm glad that my daughters know the Norwegian songs that I grew up you know singing with my grandma and that's something that, that they get to share with my mom and when we go to Norway uh, or when we meet folks who are Norwegian when they're able to speak uh, with them it, it's just really a, a gift and I think it gives them a connection to the stories um, uh, of, of my family and and we're my this a bit of a matriarchal sort of Scandinavian experience that I have and I think that it's really neat when raising two young girls that they get to hear those stories in Norwegian from my mom that are the same stories that I heard in Norwegian from her mom so I like I really appreciate that and I'm excited about that and I think it's wonderful when we get to travel to Nepal or be with Nepali friends when my my kids can you know participate and can enjoy that aspect of their uh, background and heritage and and their dad you know it's a big it's a big window into who their dad is and who their um, grandparents are and who their cousins are and I see it as an opportunity for them to connect and um, to understand and and to grow those bonds you know through language we can connect and we can create bonds and uh, I see that when we're able to be together or if we're just you know facetiming yeah. Um, <laughs> linguistically, do they sort of seamlessly switch into Norwegian when you're in Norway and switch into Nepali when you're in Nepal? Yeah, they 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 do really well with that. I think certainly for my youngest daughter, um, I notice 
that when she spends, you know, even just a few weeks with my mom, you know, here in the, my mom resides in the US, uh, if she spends just a few weeks with my mom or if my mom comes to visit for a few weeks, I notice just the speed at which she's speaking in Norwegian is really increased. So is there anything else about language and identity and culture that I didn't ask you or that you wanted to share? I think the more, I think that when we learn additional languages, I think that we get a, a window into other cultures. That is, and I think it's very special to be able to show that level of curiosity you know, um, that level of eagerness. And I think that definitely in my experience, even learning another language, I found that, you know, folks were impressed or, or happy that I was making that effort to learn Nepali, but it's very humbling when you're trying to learn another language. Um, and like you said before, you can't exactly get the accent. I think my Nepali probably sounds like a Norwegian <laughs> trying to speak Nepali. Um, and I remember saying a phrase or something and folks would laugh, you know, and I said, oh, did I say it wrong? You know, no, no, no. It's just so funny that you said <laughs> it. <laughs> so um, it's a great way to connect. And um, it's a great way to show curiosity and appreciation for their cultures. And I think it's lots of fun. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to parents who are interested in raising their children with two or more languages? To stay as the language example of the language that you speak fluently, you know, um, it's hard if you have multiple languages and the parents don't share the different languages. But I think if you can stay um, in conversation with your child and be that example of that one language, I think that's ideal. Um, it's important to not mix in your sentence. So um, to if you're not able to be in that role, let's say of the Spanish speaker at all times, if you're gonna to switch to English, it's important that the family doesn't take on a hybridized language um, and a family language, if you will, um, that, that if you do have to speak in English with your spouse that you speak as clearly as you can, because the, I think that when families have a hybridizing that can be hard. So stay in the role, um, do the best that you can, um, be kind to yourself and um, link up with friends and have fun with it. Yeah, I think what you said before was so important as well that um, children need to have a reason to use the language. Mm -hmm. um, so connecting with other families and other peer, their peers, mm -hmm. yeah. And rather than trying to teach it, just be with the language, just use the language. I think that can be very hard for, for parents to, um, to remember that being in that language is what children need, just exposure and experience in a practical way. You don't have to teach them the language. Um, you really just need to give that base, that oral um, experiential exposure base. And then once you have that down, then you can build on it if you want to actually teach reading and writing. Um, and in my case, I can share a funny story, which is that I only had really the oral language facility base as a child. I did not 
learn to read and write in Norwegian until college. And so that was, someone could have done a study on me because I wrote everything phonetically, you know, um, when I arrived at, um, at St. Olaf College where I was able to study Norwegian, which was great. Um, so a strong oral language and spoken language is, is your real goal. You don't have to start teaching them because they can always um, add that on later, the actual reading and the writing. And I think folks can start with the reading and the writing spot. And that's not really where you need to begin with children. They just need to live the language, sing songs, hear stories, be around children who speak that language, be around grandparents who speak that language. And that example, you know, the adult who is in that role, I think is that's the ideal. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, my last question for you is about Montessori, not languages. Mm -hmm. um, so what advice would you give to parents who are considering Montessori or are interested in Montes Montecurious, if you will. <laughs> like, I haven't heard that before. Um, I would say, you know, Montessori is an aid to life. You know, Montessori supports children in their natural development. Um, authentic Montessori uh, experiences are supportive, you know, and put the child's front and center, highly respectful, loving and fun and joyful. I think that's authentic um, Montessori. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of great online resources. I would say, you know, AMI has Aid to Life. That's a helpful resource. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, and when you're looking at schools, just see how, how are the adults interacting with the children? Is there um, a sense of space for the children? Um, to be independent? Are they joyful? Are they engaged? Are they connected to meaningful work? I think it's also, um, I think parents sometimes feel like they have to go all or nothing with Montessori. And I think that is a good reminder that it's like supporting them in their natural development. And we don't have mm -hmm. to, like you were saying before, you don't have to have the classroom at home. Right. Yeah. Definitely. One thing that I'm very fond of reminding folks is that you, if you're choosing to have your child in a Montessori school, that the things that you do at home are really complementing that. You, you don't have to have Montessori materials. You know, you can have access to independence. Um, and so I think Montessori in the home is a really important topic to think about. It's not creating a school at home, but it's creating opportunities for purposeful activity, uh, opportunities for increased independence and building of skills for successful daily living you know that when a child learns over time how to go and get their own snacks and makes healthy choices that is going to be a good life skill for them yeah definitely for example um, yeah so is there anything else that you wanted to share with us we've covered a lot mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, no, I, I really, um, I'm excited for parents who speak, you know, two or more languages or have a language that, you know, that maybe they grew up with to be able to share that with children. And if, even if you're not a native speaker, just playing songs, you know, um, we, we have a lot of access. We can, we can play songs, you know, in Spanish, for example, if you would like your child to be exposed to that and, and you can sing along with them and you don't have to be perfect, you know, you can enjoy um, the musicality of languages. I would say for me, I think uh, languages are a bit like appreciating music. 
that there's a there's a musicality to it first and and you could begin there and um, and lay a nice foundation for your child even if you don't speak another language yeah that is that is great advice well thank you so much siri this was a wonderful conversation my pleasure Thank you again to Siri for joining me for this conversation. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to leave a five-star rating. If you'd like to join the Patreon community to keep the podcast running, you'll find the link to that in the episode description. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.